0: It was late August. The temperature, about 105. Football practice. Well into football practice. The year 19... 19- mm-hmm. High school. And we students, when we would practice and we would get to the end of practice, the first thing we would do, because our coaches had this belief system, do not give the the players water because that makes them weak. If we give them water now, you know what happens? They're going to want water in the game. And so that was just the philosophy way back then. They've changed that now. So, but at, at the end of practice, you we would run to the water and we'd peel our lips off our teeth so we could get the water in. And then you would always have some rookie kid, you know, some freshman drink a ton of water and then roll on the ground holding their tummy and you'd laugh at them. But we didn't know what real thirst was. You see, at the end in World War 1 there was a group of British Australian and New Zealand soldiers they knew what real thirst was they were in the in in the Middle East they had just left Beersheba and as they were they were fighting the enemy they fought so successfully that they passed up their water lines they passed up their support you see that was back in the days that their water lines were from camels and so they got too far away from the water and they ran out you know you and I we can live uh, anywhere from 30 to 40 days maybe longer without food we can live supposedly three to four days if we're careful without water, but not if you're fighting a war. They only had one chance. They had to get to the wells of Sharia they didn't get to the wells of sharia thousands of soldiers would die hundreds died on the way not because of the bullets of the enemy but because of thirst so these men literally fought for their lives and they fought and they fought and finally, they broke through the enemy lines. Finally, they drove the enemy away and they made it to the wells. And as they got to the wells, those who were still able to stand stood guard and they, they brought the water to the weakest, to those closest to dying. And the water began to revive them and it took four hours to give every soldier the water they needed but they understood what it meant. They understood what thirst was. In fact, one officer wrote this. I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson in that march from Beersheba to the Sharia wells. If such were our thirst for God for righteousness and His will in our lives, an all-consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire on how rich the fruit of the Spirit in our lives would be. For you see, when their water ran out, their mouths dried out, their eyes grew bloodshot, their lips swelled and turned purple. When they saw mirages, they became totally, completely obsessed with water what it would be like to be obsessed with the righteousness of god blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness hunger and thirst for righteousness Braxton, when was the last time you used that word righteousness in a conversation? Yeah. Um, Bill, do you and your wife just sit there and say, now, sweetie, how was your righteousness today? Not at all. Uh, Tony, do, do you normally ask Lori about her righteousness each morning? As she gets up, sweetie, what's your day like and how's your righteousness today? That's kind of an old-timey word, isn't it? Kind of an old-school word, you know? Righteousness. What does it mean? Do we even understand it? So let me take you back, let me take you to... A, a theologian here's what Wayne Grudem the former professor of theology at our seminary Trinity in his book Systematic Theology wrote he said when we talk about God's righteousness it means God's always acts in accordance to what is right and he himself is the final standard of what is right and what is right is that which conforms to God's moral character huh? What is right is that which conforms to God's moral character. God always does what is right and he himself is the standard of what is right. O- okay. Well, can I can I share a a fact, a secret if you don't know? You have a really simple pastor. He's not that bright. So I have to boil things down where I can understand it. So how do I take that truth and make it where I can apply it? And and so as I look at it and I begin to to chew on it, I come up with this thing. And here's the statement. Hunger and thirst, that's a metaphor for intense desire. So let me rephrase this verse. Blessed are those who are starving, and catch this, to make right choices that please God. That's righteousness. Choosing to make a right choice that pleases God. You see, righteousness, which comes from the character of God means I need to make choices that please God. You know, you say, well, why are you adding that? Why don't you just say make right choices? Because the Bible tells us that there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is destruction. There are ways that we think we're making right choices, but they're not always right choices unless we put in that little qualifier, pleasing God. He has to make the decision If it's the right choice not me you see my culture tells me that this 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 and this is a right choice but not all right choices are right choices when it comes does the culture agree with God or not for if I have to choose between the culture and God I better choose God so righteousness Hunger and thirsting for righteousness is that I am starving to make choices that please God. That conform to His character. That conform to His holiness, to His justice, His goodness, His love, His purity, His unchangingness. I long to make decisions that reflect who He is. I had this wonderful professor in college who used to say it this way. He said, Greg, you know, you can sum up the entire New Testament, and since the New Testament explains the Old Testament, you can sum up the entire Bible. The key teaching of the success of the Christian life can be summed up in just one simple phrase, in just a few words. And he said, Greg, since you're simple, you'll like this. And then he would give a dramatic effect. He'd stop and pause. Then he would lean closer. He'd say, now, Greg, listen closely. My words are life-changing. He'd say, now, write this down. And so I'd get my pen out, and I'd start writing. What what do you have to say, prof? What do you have to say? And he said, okay, this is it. This is it. Life-changing words. Whatever you are doing, that is right. Keep doing it. Whoa, I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. Whatever you are doing that is wrong, knock it off. How's that for life changing? Whatever you're doing that's right, keep doing it. Whatever you're doing that's wrong, knock it off. Not bad advice. Not bad Advice, hunger and thirst to make the choices that God honors. Now some of you right now, when I say that, have a giant lump forming in your throat. Panic has set in. Cold sweat has broken across your forehead. Because in the back of your mind, this has popped out. But Pastor Greg, how do I know what the right choice is? I mean, you said, you said there's a way that seems right in man, but the end thereof is destruction. So you're saying my brain can sometimes be fooled. You're telling me culture tries to fool me. How do I know? Well, fortunately, God gives us a couple tools. First of all, He gives us the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3 starting verse 16 tells us that the scripture has been given to show us what we need to become a mature wise believer. Secondly, in John 16, the spirit to teach us all truth. God has given you your own truth detector in the form of the Holy Spirit when you become a follower of Jesus Christ at that moment you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who brings truth to you have you ever had that that time Ah, it just doesn't feel right I, I can't put my finger on it it just doesn't seem right that's probably the Holy Spirit working in your heart. So he gives us those things. you say, but but Pastor Greg, I, I, I'm still not sure. Well, let me give you a pop quiz. How many of you enjoyed pop quizzes in, in school? Any of you? You did put your hand up, didn't you? Amanda, you did. Yeah. She's also a trainer. She gives all her people, she trains pop quizzes too. I, I've seen you. It's scary. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Genesis 9. Pop quiz in one. Found in Genesis 9. No doubt. Goes, plants a vineyard. He plants this wonderful vineyard. Grows grapes. Takes the grapes. Makes wine. Takes the wine. Gets blasted drunk. Does something so disgusting that Scripture won't tell us what it was, but he lost the respect forever. And it would haunt him all his days. Question. Noah did, was it right or wrong? You got your answer? Right or wrong? You can say it out loud, I'll let you. Wrong. All right. Let me give you another one. Let's go to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, here's something that happened She wants a baby. God has promised, God says, I will provide. Believe my promises, but she lives in a culture that says if you don't have a baby, you're not a full woman. If you no, the pressure on her was horrid, and so she does something very cold. Cult- her husband and she says this, husband, I have a servant. And what she does is very accepting. She says, husband, have intimate relationship with. My servant, and we will produce a child that way. Abraham. He knows the promises; he knows that it's supposed to come through Sarah. But he seems to be a willing participant. Now, culture says it's right. His wife says it's right. Decision to make. He decides to go along with his wife on this. Did he make a right decision or a wrong decision? A wrong decision. You say, how do you know, Pastor Greg? Because right now, in the Middle East, we have the results of that decision. Yeah. But the culture said it was right. His wife said it was right. And he failed his job to say, sweetie, we're waiting on God. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Let me give you another one. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel makes up his mind to do what is right. He goes... To a foreign land, he's got his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, to bed we go, or Meshach, you your Shagabundaglow, you know, you, these crazy guys. And so they're there, and they're told, eat some food you're not supposed to eat. And he goes, uh-uh, it's not kosher. And so he makes a plea. He humbles himself and goes and makes a plea and says, we're not going to eat. And if you won't do it, we're still not going to eat it. Was he right or wrong? He was right. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 6. Six things the Lord hates. Seven that are abomination. Haughty eyes. Right or wrong? Wrong. Lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. One who sows discord among brothers. Guess what? Right decisions aren't that hard. They really aren't. In fact, you say, well, I, I'm still not sure. Well, why don't we just turn to the premier ethical code that God gave us? It's found in Exodus chapter 20. begins with, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any other likeness of anything that is in heaven above or anything that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, honor your father and your mother, thou shalt not murder. There was a Sunday school teacher, and it said, now kids, what is, the, what is the commandment that has to do with kids and their parents? And the little girl raised her hand and said, honor your father and mother. And they said, yeah, that's right. What is the commandment that has to do with brothers and sisters? and a little boy raised his hand he said, "Thou shalt not kill <laughs> you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet Je- You see these beautiful ones. The first ones start with our relationship with God. The second ones then go to our relationship with man. Beautiful. We can take those. We can run with those. But then Jesus takes those, and he makes it even more simple. And what does he do? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If it doesn't fall in one of those, guess what? We got a problem. It's very easy to look at that. Love God. Love men. Mark chapter 12. Can I make a confession here? I often know the right thing to do, but my want to is often broken. My want-to breaks pretty easily. How about you? I know the right thing to do. I know I'm supposed to respond to my wife with a loving voice, a kind word. Even when she asks me the same question over and over. I know I'm supposed to do that. But my want to breaks. What do I do? Well, I I got a confession to make for all of us. All of us are born with broken want tos. If we try to gin it up on our own, inside, 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 it's broken. Remember how the whole thing began? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we talked about how we throw ourselves at the feet of God. And we say, God, I have nothing to bring. It's up to you. Remember the man who came and said, If you can heal my child, he says, if I can believe, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, for you and I, we can't want to enough. We need to go to him. We need to ask God. We need to ask our Lord Jesus Christ to come and develop the want-to in us. We need to plead for Him to give us the want-to. I don't want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't want to be that type of person. And so I need to plead with Him to put that desire in me that hunger in me that thirst in me that desire to do what is right i need to ask him to make me this new creation i begin with prayer i bolster it by hanging with people who have the same heart i feed it with the word of god i do it even when i don't feel like it and i trust his promise I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there's a promise there. Because when I do, I'll be satisfied. When I cry out, I don't break break the fact that I'm broken. My want to is broken. Guess what? He's going to do a new work in me so that I'll be satisfied. That leads us to our next verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Up to this point, the first few Beatitudes are all internal. Did you catch that? They're all internal. They're all here. Blessed are the poor spirit. You know, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry. It's all internal. But we now come to a divide. We now come to an external where something flows. And and up to this point, everything seems to flow. A leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D, and it seems to make sense. But I want to share something with you. God wrote this. Jesus is speaking this in a couplet form. The first one pairs with the fifth one. The second one with the sixth. What is the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The fifth one is blessed are the merciful. What is the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit is the one who says, I am throwing myself at the mercy of God. God, I need your mercy. I can't earn this. And so God pours His mercy down on the poor in spirit. I want you to get this. Because I receive the mercy of Jesus Christ, I can be merciful. Catch this. This is important. We... Respond with mercy because we have been given mercy. Friend, I have a question for you today. Have you experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ? Has He washed away your sin? Has He washed away your guilt, your shame? Have you bowed your knee before Him and called Him saved right now? You can Right now, you can belong to Him. Right now, you can receive His mercy. It's as simple as ABC. A admit that you're a sinner, that you've done wrong. Believe that He died on the cross for your sin, paying for it. That He was buried and He rose again, beating death in the grave and sin. And C, confess Him, choose Him as your Lord and Savior. You do that right where you sit. If you do that, Talk to one of our friends over here in the corner at the end of the morning. We have a prayer team over there. They'd love to talk with you about the decision you made. But when we receive the mercy of God, we're able to give mercy the way God gives mercy. Not the same way, but as a reflection of His mercy. Now, friends, mercy was a foreign concept in this day and age. This was a world that viewed mercy as weakness. Viewed mercy as as what only the weak did. You didn't do mercy. In fact, let me put it to you very bluntly. When a child was born, they would take the children before the father of the home. And in a Roman home, they would take that child and They would present that child to the father, and the father would do just like the gladiator games, thumb up or thumb down. If the father put his thumb down, they would take that child out and drown that child. He had the right to decide what child lived or died. If you were beaten in battle, if you were defeated in battle, you were not to expect mercy from those who defeated you. You would suffer at the hands of the victor. You were to expect no mercy. In fact, listen to Paul as he described the culture. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanders, hater of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, Foolish, fatherless, heartless, ruthlessly unmerciful. You see, one of the first things that happens when a people turn from God is they lose mercy. And the people Jesus is now speaking to know this firsthand. They were invisible. No one cared. No one cared if they lived. No one cared if they died. The climate that they lived in that was so oppressive. No one loves me. No one sympathizes. No one notices. No one cares. So when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, their hearts, their souls exploded. They drank this in like rain on a weary land. But this is what makes God's message so different. The Scriptures are a book of mercy. 611 times, mercy is mentioned in Scriptures. In the prayer book, the book of Psalms, seven times it is mentioned nearly one time per chapter. Our world cries for mercy. We who are poor in spirit, we have experienced the gospel. We have been bought out of the slave market of sin. We have been beaten by the robbers of the world, the flesh, the devil, who have been found not by the good Samaritan, but by the great shepherd. We who are recipients of His mercy. We who have experienced His rich mercy, who have been clothed in His mercy, received the loving mercy of Christ. We who are like the tax collector who have stood beating our chest and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and have had heaven pour out the ocean of mercy upon us, how can we not pour out mercy to someone else? The scribes and Pharisees didn't get this. They didn't understand this. This was foreign to them. In fact, let me share what Jesus had to say. Matthew 23 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. Here's what he's saying. They would take mint, like spearmint. They would take that, you know, the the little little bit of spearmint. They'd take it, and they'd start chopping it up for dinner. And so let's say they just take a sprig just a tiny sprig, they'd start chopping out. And then they'd take one-tenth of it, push it to the side, and they'd put it in a little pouch. And then when they went to the temple, they'd make sure they dumped it into the temple spice bag. They cared more about putting this little tiny bit of spearmint in the temple spice bag than they cared about showing mercy to their fellow man. And Jesus says, there's a problem I have with that. That you care more about spearmint than you care about people. You care about more about cumin than you care about people. No wonder he said, you blind guides straining out a gnat. You see, my friends, the currency of heaven is Mercy. Jesus illustrates that with a story he told in Matthew 18. He said it this way. You probably remember it. There was two, a servant who came to a king, and the king was checking out who owed him what, and this guy owed him about $10 million. And he calls in the servant. And he says, hey, you owe me some money. And he goes, how much? Well, about $10 million. Oh, I'll repay you, king. I'll repay you. He goes, no, you're being sold into slavery, so is your family. I'm taking everything you got. There's no way you can pay me back. He goes, no, no, king, please, 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 please. I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. Remember the story? In the king's heart, it says, is moved with compassion. It's moved with mercy. And so he He says, okay, I'm going to forgive you this debt. Let this sink in. He doesn't even make it out of the palace. He grabs this other servant he sees walking in, slams him against the wall and says, hey, bud, where's my 50 bucks? The guy goes, I don't don't have it, but I'll get it for you. This is not good enough. Throws him in prison. Couple of the servants who've watched this whole thing run into the king and say, Hey, we got a problem, Sir King. You know that guy that you just showed mercy to? You know that guy who you forgave? He just threw a guy in jail for 50 bucks. So the master, the king, summons him back and he says this to him literally, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Mercy is the response that we have because we received mercy from Jesus Christ. To not show mercy should be foreign to our hearts. So pastor, anybody who shows mercy must be a follower of Jesus Christ. No, there's a couple kinds of mercy, my friend. You see, we live in a world that has followed the cross. And one of the things that has echoed through our world, that has reshaped our world, has been the mercy of Jesus Christ. And what was so strange in his time has seeped into our context. And the world has borrowed the mercy of Christ, but it has one major eternal difference. Our world has instances where the people may build an orphanage or help the sick or raise funds for those in dire straits. And those are beautiful things. They are wonderful things. They are good things. We should celebrate those things. And we may have rules to protect those in present or to seek to help the weak. And we need to celebrate that. And we should do good things. And we as Christians need to lead in freeing the oppressed and protecting the innocent. But what makes the mercy of Jesus Christ different is in while all those things are mercies that impact the body, only the mercy of Jesus Christ can impact the soul and set it free. Only the mercy of Jesus Christ, and this is what you and I as believers have the unique privilege of being part of is pointing people to this one Jesus Christ who can heal the soul for all eternity we've been talking about redemptive relationships in here a redemptive relationship is more than just doing good for people it's pointing people to Jesus unless they encounter the gospel there's nothing redemptive So, friends, understand that. Oh, friends, what happens when we who have been filled with mercy show mercy? There was an old man who every Friday night until his death in 1973 would visit an old broken-down pier in Florida, he'd walk on that old pier and he'd carry a bucket of fish and he'd throw fish to the seagulls. They called this old man Eddie. His full name was Eddie Rickenbacker, one of the great pilots of World War II. Someone said, Eddie, Eddie, why do you do this? And Eddie goes, back during the war, I was flying a plane over the Atlantic. got down. Most of us managed to get off into the life rafts, and as our plane sunk, we knew that it was going to be a do-or-die thing, and we went out. Soon we ran out of water. And food and we consigned ourselves that we were probably going to die we had fishing line we had hooks but we had nothing to put on the lines and of course being with salt water we couldn't drink it he goes I had closed my eyes and a seagull flew in and landed on my chest I grabbed it. I took its life. I shared the meat with the others on the raft. We kept fishing and we began to catch fish with leftover seagull. This allowed us to be saved. We were able to survive. All because of a seagull. And I've never forgotten that. So I come back every Friday to say thank you for the seagull who gave its life for me. Friends, we have something more than a seagull when we remember what King Jesus has done for us, when we remember the heart of the gospel and the mercy that has been poured upon us, we must explode back with mercy. Are you hungry for righteousness? Are you thirsting to please God? If you cry out to Him, He will fill you. Are you showing others the mercy that has been shown you? Oh, friends, the world has yet to see a church dedicated to showing Jesus' mercy to this world. May we be the first. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers and the worship team to come forward as I close this portion with prayer. Father, may we be a people that hunger and thirst Thirst for righteousness. May we be a people so clothed with mercy, so overwhelmed by the mercy shown to us that we just can't help but show mercy to others. A mercy not just doing good deeds, but mercy that brings people into the, the orbit of Jesus Christ. And Father, may we be a people that are used by You we ask that you'll bless this offering and this these tithes as they're used for your kingdom work. That it's used to further what you want to do. And we ask your blessing on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.